Welcome to another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. This is another conference takeaway podcast, and this time it's coming from Research Ed in Rugby. I'm joined here by my co-host today, Gemma Sherwood. We have just sat through a, a really jam-packed schedule, but we both had a great time. We've seen lots of different sessions, so we've loads of things to talk about. But before we dive into that, Gemma, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, um, I'm head of maths at a school called Haybridge High School in Worcestershire, so it's just south of Birmingham. I've been head of maths for two years, and before that I was an AST or SLE or whatever they decided to call it. <laughs> yeah. um, so I've, I've been doing that since 2008, and I became a teacher in 2004. Fantastic, super. And is this your first research head, or are you a bit of a veteran of these? It's my second. The first one I went to was a couple of years ago when they did maths and science in Oxford. Ah, got it. And you spoke at that one as well? No, just, just attended. Got it. So this is your debut as a research head speaker. It is. Fantastic. Super. And in fact, you were on first up, right? First session of the day. Yeah. Now, listeners, as a little teaser here, um, I've convinced Gemma to come back on the podcast at a later date. And I want to talk about some of the things that she described in her session. But for now, Gemma, can you pick out, well, give us a, a quick overview of what you talked about. And then maybe see if you pick out one or two takeaways that the listeners can perhaps try out in the lessons to... Um, the next day or the next week or, or whatever. Okay, um, well what I talked about was how I've built our maths curriculum over the last few years, uh, why I've tried to put things in the order that I have, um, and, I, and specifically how I've incorporated or tried to incorporate the learning sciences mm. six strategies for effective learning. Um, into not only our lessons but the curriculum as a whole. Can you can you remember the six strategies off the top of your head? Not or so if you go, if you go possibly because I've just spoken <laughs> about them, but I have got them written down. So they are retrieval practice, space practice, um, concrete examples, interleaving, dual coding, and elaboration. Fantastic. Okay, well, give, give us a couple of takeaways then. Okay, so um, one of the things I talked about was interleaving and how I tried to build that specifically into the curriculum. So in year seven, our students start off with some units on four operations using positive integers and decimals. Yeah. And then a bit later on, they come onto a unit on the order of operations. But then when we've um, got the hang of the order of operations, we bring in questions involving decimals. So they nice. get a chance to practice what they've done previously. We then have a unit on negative numbers, which means at the end of that unit or towards the end of it, we can build in questions on the order of operations with negative numbers, negative decimals. Yes. So starting to build it all up. I think the um, order's the key to that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And because it's all been done in a very specific order, it means you are able to bring in things you've done previously, but add a layer of complexity yes. each time. Can I ask you a question on that? So would you, so let's take the example of kind of bringing in decimals or negatives um, to one of these top units. Would you, would, you, would you hold fire bringing it in if kids weren't fluent in the basics of the topic you're teaching or would, it kind of, would you interleave it in regardless if, if that makes sense? Is it different for some classes? Would, would all classes experience the interleaving? Would some just get it later or sooner than others? It, I think it totally depends on the group that you're teaching. If you've got students that are struggling just understanding the order of operations with integers, then by bringing in decimals I'm just going to add a layer of complexity yeah, that will sure, confuse sure. them and throw them. 
uh, and some students are able to access that earlier than others. Some of them might not be able to access until much later on, but oh. that's down to the decision of the teacher. Got it. And final question on this. Um, do you, does that curriculum run right through to year 11 with this kind of emphasis on interleaving, or is it something yes. you just build in 7, 8 and building up? It, no, it's designed from 7 to 11, Jeez. but we, we implemented it initially with 7 to 9, and we're slowly building up to 11, which means we're kind of tweaking it and adjusting it as we go along. That's fantastic. So still in year 11, you would have a, a topic unit that you would teach, and then at the end of that topic unit, prior topics would be interleaved then. Ideally, yeah. Nice. Will you give us an example from year 11? What would be, what would be something Ooh, like that? Or year okay. 10 or something um, like that? Just... So something like... So one example then would be something which I think maths teachers are inclined to do anyway, but we try and build it in explicitly, and that would be, say, in year 10 when we do the sine and cosine rule, um, towards the end of the unit, we'd make sure that we spend time looking at questions that force the students to select whether we do sine and cosine rule or Pythagoras or right angle trigonometry, spending time getting them to make those decisions rather than just looking at the sine and cosine rule and then moving on. Yeah, f fantastic. And uh, again, Gemma, that's a, a huge mistake I've made. And just teaching topics in isolation, kids can do it because it's all kind of nicely packaged in this bundle. Every example is like all the ones that's come before. But getting kids good at practicing making those decisions when something is something and when something isn't it mm. is absolutely fundamental so no i love that one and another takeaway from your session have you got another one uh yeah well, we talked about elaboration oh yeah go on yeah go on because so, uh, this won't be one i'm familiar with so um elaboration there is let's see if i can find the exact wording for it so there's a quote from Dunlosky from 2013, and he described elaboration um, as two things. There's elaborative interrogation, which is generating an explanation for why an explicitly stated fact or concept is true. Give me that one again. Okay. Um, generating an explanation for why an explicitly stated fact or concept is true. Okay, yep. Um, and then the other version of elaboration is a self-explanation, so explaining how new information is related to known information, okay. or explaining the steps taken during problem solving. Got it. So if I just pick up on the second one of those, sure. um, if I give my students a problem to solve and then they are able to do it, and then we move on, I don't think that's as effective as giving the opportunity then to stop and look back at what they've done and reflect and maybe even write down the steps that they did so that they've got chance to think about it again and chance to clarify what yes. they were doing in their own minds. That's nice. And that feeds in, I guess, to kind of cognitive load theory, where even if students solve a problem, if they if their working memory has been so filled up with all the steps to get from start to finish, and they've, they've almost no capacity left to, to take that moment to, to look, where did they start from? Where did they end with? How did they get from the start to the yeah, end? And to take stock of it. Potentially learn nothing, even though even if they get the problem right. But by mm. doing that, by, by giving them time to reflect and look back on it, at a time where their working memory isn't being rammed up, filled fill with trying to trying to do each of those individual steps, yeah. it's more likely to retain it, put it into long-term memory, and and be useful. Yeah, oh, I, I like that. Well, that is a great teaser for your uh, your appearance on the podcast in future, John. That's super. Well, so session one, I went to. Now you'll love this here. So I'm John Brunskill. Now one of my um, aims is to know more about primary school teaching. It's mm. a black spot for me. I've been into primary schools, I've spoke to primary school teachers, but I don't know enough about it and it makes me a worse teacher. I am not, for years I've been letting down my year sevens and eights because I don't know enough about the mathematical journey that they've been on. Um, so that's been one of my overriding aims. So as soon as I saw John was on the bill, I thought I'm going to go and see him here. So John teaches at, at Reach Academy, which is a free school. Now first, I think I'm going to try and get him on the podcast. 
First fascinating fact here is that, so they go right through from kind of reception to year 13. They haven't got year sixes or year thirteens yet, I don't think. I think they're coming next year. But they banned the terms primary and secondary because they want to see it as a kind of continuous journey. Okay. There should be no dip between six and seven and so on. So I like that straight away. Now, <laughs> this is good. He, was, um, he spoke about primary teaching in topic units, kind of themed topic units across primary school. So he said a mistake he used to make was he did one, a project on the Stone Age, and it involved three lessons where kids were building a house, right? And at the end of it, the kids had learnt that straw doesn't stick particularly well to paper. But that was about it. <laughs> and if you ask them, like, how old were Homo sapiens or when was the Stone Age, the chances mm. are they wouldn't know it. But here was the interesting thing. He said that most kids wouldn't know it, but the kids who would get that knowledge were the ones who went home, spoke about it to their parents, and then whose parents then engaged with the dialogue. So. Yes. Whereas a lot of kids don't have that kind of advantage. So if anything, these projects were widening the achievement gap because mm. it was the kids who then went home and had that kind of home environment that was supportive and, and had kid, uh, parents who could engage with it, they were getting more and more knowledgeable. Mm. And the other kids were just going nowhere because the school wasn't teaching them the knowledge. So I thought that was really interesting. Mm. So then he talked about how now they do projects. So he did, and I loved this bit. So um, he talked about one on the Apollo moon landing. And he said, whenever he's planning a, a kind of project like this out, the question he asks himself is, what do we expect an intelligent adult to know about this subject? And that's how he frames it. So he put on the Apollo moon landing and he got everyone in the audience to think about what do you know about this? Now, if I said to you, Apollo moon landing, what, have you, what, what are you offering there? Because I, I have little. What, or, or what kind of questions? What, if you were to have a conversation about it, what, what would you want to know to be armed to have a decent conversation about something like that? That's a good question. Well, I suppose I can think about my very cursory knowledge. Mm. Uh, the, uh, the the famous quote from Neil Armstrong and exactly. the fact that he potentially got it wrong. And, perfect, yes. Um, but I suppose I don't really know much scientifically. Yeah, so and, I, then, and yeah. it was interesting. So we talked about, you'd want, if you did a project on the Apollo landing, at the end of it, you'd want kids to know the quote. You'd want kids to know that it's kind of part of a space race you'd, between yeah. the USA and Russia. You want them to know the date. You want them to know the people are involved. You'd want them to know the fact that there was three astronauts, but one of them didn't go on the moon. And basically, their overriding game is they want kids to be able to have interesting conversations mm. with people about this topic at the end of it. And he said, if you frame your planning of projects with that aim, it means that your kind of content is focused and then it's kind of up to the teacher how they deliver that. They can do whatever they want. But with the overriding aim of kids at the end of it should come out knowing these things. And I thought that was quite nice. Like, what would you want an intelligent adult to know about it? But I thought that was quite a nice nice framing with that one. He uses knowledge organisers a lot, doesn't he? Yeah, so this was it. So then, because it's the buzzword at the moment. And I want to ask you about this, this Gemma. So um, he, sp he spoke a lot about the, within these projects and within lessons, there's lots of closed questions, lots of multiple choice questions, lots of, lots of self-testing. And it, interestingly as well, Kids, even year one and two, at the end of each topic unit, write an essay about it, like a mini essay. <laughs> and it's nice, they know the question in advance. So right. uh, throughout the topic unit, so you use an example, who is your favourite monarch? Or who is the best monarch? Mm. So they're all the time when they meet Elizabeth and Henry and whatever, they're already mulling that over, thinking, well, what arguments can I use and stuff? So I thought that, I thought that was quite nice. Mm. Just before we get on to knowledge organisers, the one other thing he said that was good, um, that I thought, was that... 
Enrichment only means something to kids when they know something about it. So we use the example of, and I've done this myself or I've been involved in this myself, you, you take kids on a trip to like the Roman baths or something like that or to see Westminster Abbey or something as a hook to get them interested in a topic. But unless they know something about it, it's meaningless. Like unless they know how old these baths are or use the example of Queen Elizabeth's grave, unless you know something about it, it's like, well, it means nothing. So he's, what they tend to use is the enrichment activities at the end of a project. Once kids have acquired all that knowledge, they've then got a bit more to talk about. And they're then like Elizabeth's grave or Westminster Abbey, it's like, whoa, this is the thing I've been yes. studying about. Now it means something. So I thought, I thought, I thought that, was, that was lovely. And then came knowledge organizers, <laughs> right. So um, he talked about what makes a good knowledge organizer and he showed lots of examples and there's loads going around on Twitter from this, from different subjects. But what I wanted to ask you, Gemma, um, was there's been a, lots of debate and Chris Bolton's kind of fired up a, a blog post recently about yes. this. What's your take on knowledge organizers in maths? Like, have they, have they got a place? And if so, what, what, what do they look like? Well, I'll be honest, I'm struggling at the moment. We've been making them because our school has asked us, all departments, to make knowledge organisers. Right, so it's kind of a whole school um, initiative. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I visited years ago Danny Quinn at Michaela, yeah. and she had their versions of knowledge organisers there, which, are, which were essentially um, in, in a very simple list form. Yes. Um, and they were using them to great effect. And then I came away and started to think about how I might be able to do something similar. Yeah. And... I found that it's quite easy to produce something that has uh, facts that you want students to know, like, I don't know, common fraction decimal percentage conversions yes. or the square and cube numbers. Yes. And you can put on, say, an example of steps of how to solve an equation. Yeah, of course. Yeah, nice. What the difficulty I found, though, then, is how do you use those um, in lessons to stop them just being a piece of paper in the books? Right, okay. So, um, I don't know, Some like I say, if I've got the steps for solving an equation there, I can't use that for a quiz because, yes. whereas I could ask them to study the square and cube numbers and then I could test them on them, for instance. Yeah. And I'm not entirely certain or I haven't fi really figured out how we could use them properly in maths yet. It's interesting, isn't it? So again, jo John spoke about that they have to be, and I spoke to Harry Fletcher Wood on the podcast about this, that they kids have got to be able to self-quiz with them. So you've got to mm. have your kind of something on the left, something on the right. And there was some great images in, in John's session with, with kids covering up the right-hand part of the list with a piece of paper and trying to mm. recreate it. But this was for geography, history, yeah. English, and all this kind of thing. So Chris Bolton's view on his, his blog post is that we can, they're only useful in maths for facts. So, right. you know, two is a prime number. Um, names of shapes, that kind of thing, mm. but not for certainly not for procedures. But I, I'm, I'm not like take your steps of an equation. I don't know. For me, I guess for that, it's the, it, it, you'd have to produce so many kind of different examples for all the equations mm, they absolutely. encounter. But surely, for something like adding fractions together, it's useful for them to memorize even like the fact that you need a uh, lowest common denominator or something like that. Is, is that useful? I think the problem is that we're talking a few things here and yeah, there. So yes. how can you create an effective 10-question quiz when we're talking one little Just bit little here bit and one little bit bobs. there? 
Right. The jury's out on knowledge organisers, mm. but I'm, this is something I'm going to be coming back to. The one thing I will say, yeah, which is completely unrelated to learning, but the parents in our school seem to like them because it gives them a good overview of what their students are learning, what their, their kids yes. are learning, um, which previously they might not have had. And it's working well in other subjects, as it, does it seem to be? I, I, as far as I'm aware, it, there, I think there seem to be more subjects, other subjects where it's working better. Yes. Than it is and maths is still persistent, is it? You're, like, you're still going with it? Well, we've got them. Yes. Um, but I don't know how well they're being used or whether whether we could even do something with them that would yes. be better than what we're doing at the moment. I don't know yet. That's interesting. I'm, right. I'm yet to be convinced. Me too. Right, well, we'll, we'll, we'll keep that on the burner. Perfect. All right, so Gemma, what did you do session two? Session two, I went to see Don Stewart. Oh, nice. Now, this is good listening because I went to see Don session three, so we can have a, a nice little chat about this. Now, I think it was meant to be a double session, wasn't it? That's One right. The other. Now, we should say, for, for listeners who aren't aware, Don is a legend in the world of maths, right? So his mm. Medium Maths blog is an absolute goldmine of resources. It's wonderful. And I have asked Don to be on the podcast about 30 times. And he, keeps t- <laughs> he keeps turning me down. So this might be the closest we ever get to him on the show discussing it. Right, tell me about his session, Gemma. Well, what did you take from it? Well, interestingly, he started off and he came to introduce himself to me um, and he said that he'd read about how I like to do mostly number throughout year seven and he said that he disagrees with me (laughs) so that was a good start Um, but he said that he likes to introduce algebra as early as possible and he even went in my session as far as because he even said and I was thinking of you when he said this he said um the kids can't sometimes... He was doing solving an equation, right? And he had a ridiculous equation on there that was... It was, it was built up from I think of a number and it was like I think of a number times mm-hmm. it by two, add on three, divide by... Seven. It was about seven or eight steps mm-hmm. and it was a real complex equation. And he said... The kids can't pro- can probably not do the numeracy behind this, but they'll understand like the algebraic concepts of how this equation's put together. Mm-hmm. And that I was like, whoa! That that's completely the opposite way that I would think about it. I would think let's get the number sorted first and then introduce the algebra. And I, I assume it would be the same for you, would it? Well, I think it's a really interesting discussion yes. to be had, though. Um, a lot of the ideas that he was saying remind me of things that I remember hearing on my PGCE. Um, I right. studied at Birmingham under a, a man called Dave Hewitt. Yes, yes. Um, um, and he was fascinating to listen to. And I remember, it's, it's interesting you say that, a specific session where he spoke about building up a complex equation right. and the students being able to break it back down again. Exactly. Um, and at the time, just like you say, thinking, that's absolutely amazing. And I really love the idea of getting students to think algebraically generally yes. rather a kind of a, a general idea of algebraic thought rather than a specific using symbol yes. using the, the symbols of algebra the only thing I, I, I don't know there's, there's so much to go there isn't there but I think it's really difficult to bring in algebra and abstract thought when you've got students who still struggle with Number and if algebra is broadly a generalization of number, yes, then yes, I love the fact that they can think to an extent algebraically, but I just don't know yet whether introducing algebraic thought earlier is actually necessarily useful or necessary. Yeah, I think for me, I think I agree. And I, I think you can all only get so far with your algebraic understanding mm. before your lack of ability to do the numbers is just going to be a massive barrier, right? So you could understand everything about how to construct an equation, but you can't actually solve the equation because you lack the numeracy skills. Mm. Or um, Don was big in my session about um, 
equivalents of algebraic expressions and I'll talk about a few lovely examples he did and he loves linking together expressions with brackets and how they're equivalent to expressions without brackets yeah. but that still requires you to be able to multiply numbers together to spot the equivalents to multiply out brackets and sometimes like he had one with um, that was like 5 minus then in brackets 3 minus m so you had to know about your two negatives and all this mm. and it just made me think that yeah you can get kids up to a point but then it's almost like right let's put that on hold actually because we've got to get all your numerous stuff sorted and then let's revisit the algebra whereas it just seems to make more logic sense to me to get the numeracy sort of sorted first and then do the algebra but is, is this just us, I, mean, I know what you mean because it feels then you can just run with the algebra properly. yeah what are we missing here because the thing was for me i loved his session mm. but did i only love it and i often think this whenever i'm in a math session where there's kind of problem solving or something interesting i always have a great time but i always think am i only having a great time because i've got the maths knowledge yes would my kids be having as good a time in yes this? and i think over the years that's probably why i'm inclined to not do the algebra so early because yeah. my experience over the years is that if i introduce it before they're before they seem to be quite ready yes we, we, we don't get as much success as we could do now i know there are people out there in the mass community who will vehemently disagree oh, with will. me It'll all be of kicking course off. they It'll will all be kicking off. but um i think it's a really important discussion to be had i, I do and whilst whilst we're getting people kicking off just to link this back in with the second session i went to was a debate um, and there was um, there was three people and I've actually got the names here there was uh, Karen uh, Karen I hope I'm saying a name right here Karen Karen West Pisa uh, Tom Sherrington who's going to be on the podcast and, and Andrew Old the blogger mm. and they uh, they spoke about one of the questions asked was why is there a dip between end of year six and year seven, what, why does maths achievement go down? And they, they, talk, they, they spoke about there's lots of reasons. Karen mentioned the summer holidays. Uh, Tom mentioned there's lots of diversity in the primary school experience, so it takes time for, for year seven teachers to get it, just a feel for what kids know and what they don't know. But then <laughs> Andrew made the point that firstly, secondary school teachers like to take a step back and just check how kids have been taught things to make sure it's going to be taught in a way that's going to enable them to, to progress right through to GCSE and A-level and so on. Mm. But then he made the point, and I, I wonder what your take on this is, Gemma, and I'm, I'm going to uh, say what I think. Um, he didn't want kids to do any algebra in primary school because... For two reasons, um, he mentioned the non-specialism, which again, um, this is not anti-primary school teachers at all, but it's a big ask to ask primary school teachers, not just to learn the algebra necessary to get through year six SATs, but to also think, how's this going to impact when kids come to do GCSE and A-level stuff? But also going back to what we're talking about with Don there, isn't it better that those kids just get their number concepts just absolutely secure? And Andrew was saying, let's leave algebra to year eight or even year nine once everything's sorted and then we can bring it in. Now, what's your what's your take on that? I'm inclined to agree. Yeah, I, I would love it if there was if there were no algebra at all um, in year six. I think there's a, I think there was a little bit of it. There is, yes, there um, is. But I I just don't. I know lots of people say, well, why would you deny um, the young children experience of it? And I can understand that. But exactly like you said, I would, I would really love for my students to come to me totally secure in place value and working with different types of numbers and yeah. fractions and percentages and all of these things so that I can then take them on and help them to become more abstract quick, more quickly. Yes. It's, tr it's tricky, isn't it? And this is by no means, I'll say it again, this is by no means having to go at, at primary school teachers. No, I just think, 
I think a lot of primary school teachers would prefer it, right? Like, it, surely it's better to go in a lot more depth into a narrower range of topics, and this feeds into Ed Southall's session I'll talk about a little later, than to have to think, oh, actually, well, I've got to do these three or four rather strange algebra skills that mm. don't then go anywhere else. Mm. And then, then they come in year seven and year eight, and then we've got to think, well, actually, we need to make sure that these are taught in a way that builds for the future. So it's, yeah. It's, it's interesting. interesting people have been saying about the transition, because I was in a session later on with Nikki Jones. Um, she was talking about the EEF report that's just been published into maths. And one of their recommendations is sorting out the transition between primary yeah. and secondary. Um, and they're saying that a lot of primary teachers don't know what comes next, so they don't know what to prepare the students for. But also a lot of secondary teachers don't know what the students have already done. Yes. But it's a really difficult one because what I can see is that I have some students that come to me probably perfectly ready to yes. access algebra. Yes. And then others who are struggling still to multiply and divide by 10. Absolutely. Um, and, this, and it's nothing to do with primary schools no, or no. primary school teachers, but you've got such a huge range. So it's all very well and good saying that we need to um, up the ante or up the level in year seven. But we can't do that until we know exactly what our students are able to do when they're sat in front of us. Absolutely. I think this goes back to what Andrew's saying. You have to take that time to take a step back and assess formatively or summatively what kids know and what they don't know to then mm. build from it. It's, it's bloody tricky, Gemma. It is. It is. Well, <laughs> just back to Don's session. Was there, yeah. any, um, was there any kind of activities or things you saw that you thought, actually, that's, that's really nice, that there's one um, that has some vertical straight lines. I have used it once in a lesson with Year 7. Um, vertical lines and um, horizontally across it he has lengths um, expressed algebraically. Right. Uh, something like uh, the length between two lines is n plus 7 and then a bit further along the length between another two lines may, might be a, a different expression involving n. Um, working out missing lengths between these vertical lines. Yeah, that's nice. Um, and I've used that uh, w once already last year with my Year 7 class. But interestingly, I think I possibly use it in a different way to the way Don was advocating using it, because I think he was advocating using a lot of uh, the tasks that he suggested in a way of starting to build an algebraic, uh, algebraic con um, conceptual understanding. Whereas for me, we spent time looking at forming expressions and simplifying expressions, adding and subtracting and these kind of things. And then I brought it in as a way of forcing them to think more deeply about what we'd already learnt rather than, a way as, uh, rather than as a way of introducing the learning. Yes, yes. And yeah, that's very interesting. And that, that would be similar to how I think I've used a lot of Don's things. Very rarely are they at the start of a topic. They tend mm. to be at the end. And... In Don's session with, that I was in, the second one, the kind of theme of it, of it was getting kids comfortable with equivalent expressions. But it was really interesting, and I've used, it was a really nice emphasis he put on it. It was kids already know that these two expressions are going to be equivalent because of the way the activity is set up. So they already know that you know, some complex thing with brackets actually is equal to A plus B. And then it's, all right, now you know that, now let's look at why they're equivalent. So it's almost providing that knowledge of equivalence as a hook to then say, right, now let me teach you how we can actually multiply brackets and simplify like terms and so on, which I thought was quite nice. And he used, um, it was interesting you mentioned uh, Dave Hewitt, because um, he spoke about, uh, let me get the right, uh, Dave Hewitt's kind of grid algebra. And he had, he had this, yeah. this stick was out and he was tapping with the stick. And it's beautiful because... When he did it first, I'm thinking, where on earth is this going? Because he essentially had a, had a row of grids, and he would say, this box is seven, and then he would tap two to the right, and you had to shout out that this box was nine. 
and then he tapped one to the left and this you'd know that box was six so i'm thinking all right that's fine where's this going next but then all of a sudden there was a second row added so he would tap what this box and say this was seven and then he tapped the one below and it was 10 more so you would say 17 but then he would tap one box and say it was two and then he'd go diagonally right so then you had to say okay that's 14 because you're 10 more and then one more. So I'm thinking, okay, this is fine, but I don't fully see where it's going. But then it was all kicking off, because then it was great. Because <laughs> then he tapped one and said it was B. So I was like, mm -hmm. all right, okay, got it. Tapped a couple to the right and it was B plus two. Then he would come down a row. So it was double it with two added on. So two B plus two or some, something like that. I probably got that a bit wrong. But then it all culminated in a journey across the grid. Mm -hmm. So he would start with B, and then he would go um, three along, then he would go one down, then he may go diagonally left, then he would go left three, and kids all the time are shouting these out, and then he would go back to the top. And you had a really complex expression like B plus two brackets times two, take away three, blah, blah, blah. But the twist was you got back to the top, which you knew was like B take one. Mm -hmm. So you knew this complex expression that you formed had to simplify down to something like B take one because it was on the top row and you know right. what the top row is. So again, then it was, okay, why is this complex expression that we know has to equal this simple thing? Why are those two things equivalent? Mm -hmm. And that, I just thought that's nice. That's nice. Whether I'd use that as a, at the start to then introduce collecting like terms and multiplying out brackets or whether I would use that at the end once kids have got the skills, I don't know. But I thought I liked that. And that seems to be the focus of lots of the, the debates, for want of a better word, that are happening generally that I, I hear so. is whether we should use these to reinforce something we've done or whether we should introduce and give the children a hook or an it's incentive with isn't them. It? And it always comes back to me, Gemma, and I don't know if you agree with this, and this is that people don't like this, but I'll just chuck it out there anyway. Like for me, the mistake I've made in the past is using enrichment activities too early when I'm not sure kids are in the best place to benefit from them. So even things like some of the enriched stuff, um, some of Don's stuff, I've got dead excited about using it. I've used it with the kids, and the kids just either didn't enjoy it or didn't get as far as I wanted them uh, with it. I now save those activities for the end of the process. When kids are in a better place to cope with them, enjoy them, see the relevance of them and learn from them. I, mm. I don't know, what, what do you think? No, I do agree because also my one big concern is that I have kids who are probably going to do more, the, 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 okay, let me start again. The higher retainers yes. are going to be able to access access these things more readily. Yes. Um, my, one, the, my students who, aren't doing so well at maths if I give them something that's too complex straight away from my experience what happens is they tend to get more frustrated yes and they think that this is really complicated yes. and why can't I make sense of this whereas if I give them the tools in the first place and build them up to it they have a greater sense of success and that makes them enjoy it more yes Again, but again, I can just I can hear the counter arguments, you know. But, yes. Um, and the last thing I'll say about Don's, and just just like obviously, if you haven't visited Don Stewart's Medium website, you need to stop listening to us two now and, and get on there because it's great. But uh, another one he did was, um, which I can see this being used a little bit earlier. Guess the rule, and this was beautiful. So this was where 
Uh, kid will shout out a number, say five, and the teacher already knows what the rule is, so they'll write the output of, say, eight. And then a kid will shout out nine, and we'll write an output of 16, and two, and then you write out two. And the rule in this case was you double it and take away two, and you get the output. Mm -hmm. But what's really interesting then is if you deal with numbers, there's actually there's loads of different rules that, that work. So instead of doubling and take away two, you could take away one and then double, and that works. So it goes back to, and there was loads of others, so I wrote down one here. You could times the number by four, or take away four, and then halve your answer, and that works. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to this principle again, that you show kids that it works with numbers, and they've got a whole load of examples, and you show them that these two rules always work. So now, why are these two rules equal to each other? Mm -hmm. And they will be algebraically equivalent, so you can use that to either A, introduce expanding brackets, or B, as an interesting way to practice your expanding bracket skills. So he's like his website's full of these things, but yeah, just like you, I need to get to the bottom of when is the best time to use them. You have just reminded me of another one. Actually. Yeah, go, 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 go mind. for it. Oh, please. Um, the one thing that I find that my students always struggle with and always have struggled with is understanding the idea that a graph is just a pictorial representation representation of a link between a pair of numbers or yes. and, or infinite pairs of numbers that obey yes. the same link. Um, and the idea of, they kind of get to the point where they understand that a point lies on a line and so it satisfies the equation, yeah. but I'm never, never quite convinced that they really understand that that's all the equation is, it's just describing yeah, the link absolutely. between all of those pairs of numbers. But there was a lovely activity that was like a, um, a coordinate grid and it was kind of like a noughts and crosses game right. so they you could put a cross up and then don would put a naught up and all the noughts would um eventually he would win with a diagonal line right. so he then wrote up the coordinates of the points that were on this diagonal line yes. and you could quite clearly see that um i think it was the y coordinate was one less than the x coordinate for each one and then he said so i would write that y equals x oh, minus one nice. um and he gave a quote from i can't remember who because i didn't write the name down but he said you get the kids to explain it in words and then you show them the symbolism that yes. matches their words and I, and I thought that was interesting because it seemed to address this issue of them not really understanding how the line relates to the pairs of numbers that are on it or how yeah. the equation of the line relates to it that's brilliant and uh, yeah I, I think I wrote down at the start that he said one of his themes for session one was that kids don't get enough chance to read and write expressions and he's very much of of the, the view that kids should be kind of reading algebra and translating it from words to numbers and sentences and so on. So, mm. yeah. Listen, I need to get Don on the podcast. We need to get to the bottom of this. So maybe yes. this is kind of like a, a <laughs> cry, for to, to cry for him to come on. All right. So, yeah, um, I mentioned very briefly that my session two, I think, was was a, a debate and it, and it was fascinating. What um, One thing um, that, that was just interesting there, and we, we, won't, we won't discuss it in depth because I'm going to talk to it about Tom, was just this this idea of a knowledge-rich curriculum and it seems to be the buzzword at the moment what is a knowledge-rich curriculum and i think i don't know what your take is Gemma, but i get the sense that it's that it's it's kind of easier to define in other subjects what is a knowledge-rich curriculum versus a non-knowledge-rich curriculum whereas for maths i don't know and, and andrew made the point that perhaps a less knowledge-rich curriculum in maths would be one that focuses more on generic and problem-solving skills as opposed to kind of teaching explicit kind of domain specific things like fractions and then teaching problem solving within that narrower domain but mm. i don't know is it, is it a useful thing for maths to think about a knowledge rich curriculum does it mean anything to you well possibly in some ways people talk about um general problem solving ability mm. don't they but then also you've got this idea that problem solving is very domain specific so i can solve a problem in maths but i can't necessarily solve a problem in economics yes. because i'm not an economist 
Um, and there has been a focus over the last 10 years or so on trying to get students to solve problems as if such a generic thing exists. And if it does exist, then I haven't found it yet. And I've not heard anybody tell me how to do it other than say, we ought to do it. Yes. Which leads me to think perhaps such a thing doesn't exist. Yeah. Another tricky one. Another tricky one. Yeah. Um, right. So what did you do session three then? I think we must be up to. Yeah. I went to see Ben White, um, who is a school leader, and he is, he is particularly interested in why CPD often fails. Okay. So that was really, really interesting because he was talking about the fact that... Um, the majority of us here are here because we've chosen to be here. We spend time reading and read, reading blog posts and books and these kinds of things. And so we've probably been changing our practice as a result of what we read. And we know, of course, that you definitely have been doing yeah, sure. that. Um, but what he said is it's very difficult to go back to school and to stand in front of a group of teachers and say, the research says you should be doing this, but actually get them to do it. And he yes. said what you tend to find is that people don't change their practice, even though you've told them that this is a good thing to do and it's going to work. Um, and he, interestingly, he spoke about uh, a, a piece of research by someone called Nolan, who found out that the biggest predictor of behaviour change is what you think your neighbours are doing. Oh. So he gave the example of in hotel rooms, if you tell people to reuse their towels because of the environmental benefits and because it's, it's good in X, Y, and Z re for X, Y, and Z ways, they probably are less likely to do it, or they are. it's been shown that they are less likely to do it than if you write on the wall, most people are reusing nice. their towels. Nice. So if you think that other people are doing it, you're more likely to change what you do. That's good. So what's the implication there? How, how, how does that translate to kind of more effective CPD? Is it, is it showing kind of convincing teachers that other people are doing it and, and getting benefits from it. Well, that was part of it. Um, he spoke about the idea of turning something into a social norm. Ah, okay. So it's, it's easier to implement things if people are happy that it's okay to do so. Is it safe to do so? Uh, it's very easy, especially in schools historically, to not want to do something because you're scared that you will be judged on it. You're scared if you get bad results, for instance, that you will get in trouble. Whereas he's saying you need to create an environment where it's safe to fail. It's okay to say um, that didn't work, but I'll try something else. And for people to know what everybody else is doing. So to create a climate where people are talking about it and engaging with what's going on and talking about what they do in their classrooms. Um, and he talked about two different types of demands as well. He okay. said that when you ask somebody to do something, you can either place a challenge demand on them or a right. hindrance demand. So saying, um, if something you ask them to do doesn't fit in with what they understand at the moment, they'll see it as a hindrance demand and they won't implement it. Okay, yes. Whereas if it makes sense to them, if they can engage with it emotionally, if it seems to solve a problem that they can identify with or they can recognise, then what you're asking them to do, although it may be a demand on their time, uh, it would be a challenge demand and they'll engage in it and they'll be more happy to do it. That's interesting. Jeez. So as someone yourself who's like influential within your own school, what, what would, would it make you do anything differently this? If you were trying to bring in some CPD within either the maths department or whole school, what, what was your kind of takeaway from it? I think the thing for me seems from that one to be about um, investing in things long term. Mm. So if, if you just sit down and have a session for an hour where you tell people what will work and then leave it at that, that it's never going to change. 
what you need to do is have regular opportunities to come together, to try things out, to get back together, to discuss it, to see what people think, what they liked, what they didn't like. And you need to create a culture whereby it's, it's ongoing and yeah. you're, you're, everybody knows that things won't change overnight, that you have to keep going at it. That's great. That sounds a great session, though. That sounded yeah, really, that sounded, really interesting. That sounded good. Well, I headed next to Mark Lahane. Now, I've, I've wanted to see Mark for, for a while. I've, I've I spoke to him on Twitter a little bit, but, uh, but never, never, um, never met him in person. And his session was it was great. So it was called um, <laughs> "My Favorite Mistakes and Greatest Greatest Hits of My Educational Errors." And, and like Mark is really kind of prestigious in the world of education. And so I, I like it when teachers just lay it bare and say, "Look, I've I've messed up in the past, but I, I've learned from it." So he did. Um, he kind of spoke about five mistakes that I just rattled through, and then I'll, I'll take. I'll tell you what my kind of biggest takeaway for, from it was. So the first mistake was he used to believe that teachers should engage kids in order to make them learn, and he mm -hmm. describes this as action over content. And I thought that that was that was nice. It goes back to Willingham's memory being the residue of thought. What are kids actually thinking about? Mm -hmm. I've certainly made that mistake in the past. Mistake two. Now this is controversial, so it'll all be kicking off uh, if it isn't already. <laughs> Students should have choice over what they learn he thinks that's a that's a mistake um, and he spoke about how what he used to do um, and he, he showed us a kind of departmental plan that had this in was google time you know how uh, when google first kind of started employees had 20 percent of their working week where they could work on whatever they wanted mm -hmm. and it led to lots of innovation i think gmail and maybe even google calendar came from it so he, he thought it'd be a good idea to bring that into the classroom so it's something like 12 hours a week Kids could decide what they wanted to work on, and he just said it was an absolute disaster. Um, so I, I talk about this in the book how I've really restricted the choice I give kids over what they learn. But I know a lot of teachers, and again, I, I need to get to the bottom of this. A lot of teachers would be giving kids a lot more choice, and specifically, like getting kids to create their own examples, which I think is slightly different. But but giving them choice over what to work on, what problems to solve. And I know, like Andrew Blair, who's been on the podcast with Inquiry Maths, that's very much kind of students choosing their path through things. Mm -hmm. I'm not entirely sold on it, um, but I'm, I'm 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 ready to be convinced with that one. It reminds me a little bit of what we were told sometime in the last decade with differentiation, where you should maybe have um, three level of difficulty in questions and get the kids to pick yeah. where they want to start. It's tricky, isn't it? Like, again, and that was, that was, that was fact, wasn't it? That that was mm. the best thing to do, mm. right? Whereas I would never dream of doing no. that now because I, well, probably probably haven't got time to discuss it all. <laughs> we will I just in. wouldn't go there. No, no. Well, yeah, well, well, we'll put on the table to dig into differentiation when you're back on the show, Jack, <laughs> because that is a minefield. Um, his third mistake was that behaviour is all about relationships, and I thought mm -hmm. that was interesting, and he, he used the classic line that I've heard tons of times. Well, he's all right for me. That he behaves for me, or she behaves for me. So you must be doing something wrong. You know, I thought that was great. How to get someone's back? Up, exactly. <laughs> uh, he spoke on a wider level as a school leader that um, he used to think exclusions was evidence of, of schools failing kids, but now he, he believes that that's a mistake. And his final one he listed was that he, he's able to spot outstanding teaching when he sees it, and he thinks that's a load of nonsense uh, now. So it's all themes that we've we've covered in the past, but then he kind of. He put a good little spin on it, and I think this is really, really, really important. He said that there's a danger that when you swing from kind of mistakes to something else, perhaps you read some research, there's a danger of an overcorrection where you read something and you think, right, this is the best thing ever, and you swing too far. You almost forget everything that's come before it, and you just kind of get obsessed with that thing. And I think I've been guilty of this, and I think 
partly through my fault, but, but other teachers are, with this kind of uh, variation theory or, or minimally uh, different examples. I'm obsessed with them, but I think I may be a bit too obsessed. Because once you read a bit of research and I see it working, I think, right, well, this is the answer to everything. Whereas I just it's maybe just take stock a little bit to think, am I overcorrecting for all the things I've done wrong in the past? Have I swung too far the other way? Does that mm, make sense? Yeah, it does. Whereas I think I'm probably overcautious. Yeah, <laughs> possibly. possibly. <laughs> and I probably spend too much time watching and going, should I? Should yeah. I? <laughs> and then never decide. <laughs> and he, he left this session with with three questions, and I think these are these are good to ponder. So he said, what obvious truth? now will we laugh at in five years so i think that's mm -hmm. good what do we think that's true now we'll just think it's ridiculous in five years and again that comes back to what you just said there Gemma, about um three levels of challenge that's that was obvious that's what everybody had, had to do at the start or some uh, all some and may or, or what is it with less than most or some yeah, well, yeah almost some yeah something like that <laughs> remember what i was talking about yeah i don't like learning styles and all that kind of thing so what mm -hmm. is the obvious truth now that's going to be debunked um what current gain is at the risk of overreach? So as I've just mentioned there, I think that's a really um, important one. And then the other big one, and yet you've touched upon this already, Gemma, how do we take people with us? How do we actually engage the wider community with, with some of these mm. things? So it was a, a fascinating session. I, I really, really enjoyed that one. And um, what did you see next? Well, I was going to go and see Professor Sam Twistleton, oh, but yes. then that was cancelled. Oh, right. Okay. So I went to Robin McPherson. Yes, who nice. I think you've had on the podcast. I you? have, yeah. Okay. So he would be the co-author of What Does It Look Like in the Classroom? Yeah, which yes, great Carl Hendrick. Mm. So he was talking about the uh, about becoming evidence-informed um, rather than evidence-based. Okay. initially so he said it's very easy to say that we are an evidence-based school but that suggests that there is evidence to back up everything that you do right. which isn't necessarily the case so it's better to be evidence informed where evidence sits alongside your professional experience nice okay mm. i like that um he talked about the scottish system where teachers have to re-register every five years and they have to show some kind of track record of engagement in research in order to do that he said he's not quite sure how well that's being implemented but that's the idea oh, what's that? that was quite re-register re re yes what does that mean um i i i took it to mean they register with a governing body oh, of teachers right. although that's i couldn't tell you exactly so okay. hopefully yeah, some yeah, yeah, one of your yeah, listeners sure, can sure, fill sure. us in a little bit on that um and he also said something interesting. He said, if there's a gap between research and practice, so where research is all done by researchers and it doesn't seem to reach the classroom, which we've had, we seem to have a lot of, yeah. which has happened a lot in the past, where there's a gap between research and practice, that's where it gets filled with nonsense. Right. So he says that's how we've come up with things like learning styles and left and right brains and the just Google it stuff. Ah, okay. So, so it's he the said, gap that creates The that. gap between research and practice, which is what he was then trying to start to fill by producing his book with Carl Hendrick. That's interesting. Mm. That's great. Um, anything else from Robin's session that, that sprung to mind? Um, he said traditionally there have been a few problems with research. So it's been one-way traffic where teachers have been the object of study rather than being involved in the research themselves. Um, and often it's been a foreign language to teachers. Uh, it, it's written by researchers for researchers and teachers either don't have the time or the inclination to make sense of it properly. Um, and he also said it's very difficult to get, it was kind of linked to the one I saw before actually about getting evidence to inform what happens in the classroom and to change people's behaviours. But he talked about the Semmelweis reflex, which is from um, an Austrian medic from the 19th century. Um, he was 
curious about why one, uh, there, were, there were two maternity wards right next to each other. One of them had a much higher infant mortality rate than the other. Right. And he couldn't figure out why. People couldn't figure out why. And then he realised eventually that the doctors, it was the same doctors working in both. Right. They were performing autopsies on dead infants in the one hospital and then going over to the other hospital and delivering babies without washing their hands. So the germs were transferring and the babies in the second hospital were dying at a greater rate than in the first hospital. So he pointed this out and he was lambasted by the medical community and people were saying things like, but doctors are gentlemen and gentlemen keep their hands clean. Gentlemen's hands are clean. And he was saying it's a similar kind of thing in the classroom where if a teacher's personal experience doesn't agree with what the evidence is saying, they, they put the walls up. It's difficult, isn't it? And I guess that goes back to exactly what you're saying before. That again, especially if it doesn't fit in, that it's almost quite a confrontational thing, right? That mm. you, okay, you're saying I have to do this, but that is completely not what I agree with. And but again, unless we can, and this sounds like very tribal, but some of the, certainly I get the feeling that one of the the goals of research ed and these conferences they're great for the people who come here. But how do you get that message out to, to the wider community? It's, yeah. it's difficult, isn't it? The main thing he said there was little and often. Yes. So you need to keep talking about it in school. And it comes back to what I said before, but you need to spend time on it. Yes. Uh, you can't just say, this is how we're going to do it now. Yeah. Go. Because it won't happen. And it was in, in the previous session, actually, with Ben White, where he said that um, if you listen to principles in a session and you think, yeah, that's great. Where does the rehearsing of those principles happen? Yeah. When does that happen? Yes. You need to... You need to build in time for people to rehearse and practice these things if it's going to affect a change. That's it. I mean, there's a couple of things on that. I heard, I think Tom Sherrington made a similar point that, yeah, he made it with behaviour management. He's <laughs> kind of behaviour management is dead easy in theory. Like anyone can read up, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. But then essentially we're chucked into the lion's den. You don't get a chance mm. to practice that behaviour management. Mm. And Harry Fletcher Wood, when I interviewed him um, on the podcast, he said the best CPD he'd ever been on was, was Doug Lemoff's um, organization that, that does CPD because you do kind of role plays you get you get the chance to visualize and act out what it's going to look like in the classroom he said it feels a bit awkward when you're first doing it and I, I would hate doing it <laughs> but it's true right because like so we'll we'll we've been to research ed today we've got all these ideas and we'll go to maths comp we'll have all these ideas but the first time you get to practice those ideas is in front of kids and yeah. and we know that there's a million things that could go wrong there's a million variables out of that, that we can't control there and there's a danger that something doesn't work but not because it's a bad idea but because we haven't practiced it or there's been something else that's got in the way so yeah for me there's, there's two things from what you've said there Gemma the first is that yeah, we need to we need to give opportunities for people to practice this in a kind of controlled environment. So almost like in a class that you know particularly well, or if you're up for it, kind of role playing it with somebody. Like literally saying the words that you're going to say when you introduce something, or if it's a behaviour thing. That that'd be the first thing for me. And the second, and I always say this, is only try one thing at once. Like mm. if if you like, I've come back from conferences thinking I'm going to do this, 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 and it's just too much. You end up um, doing none of it. Don't yeah, you? absolutely, and and. And then the lesson will go crap, and you don't know why it's gone crap. Is it because mm. of strategy one, two, three, four, five, or six that I've tried? So yeah, little and off, 
then I think that's mm. yeah that's smart that's smart and um, right so next up I went to Ed Southall's session now Ed's been a guest on the podcast twice now and Ed's doing his PhD at the moment um, on um, international influence on primary education so it's absolutely okay. fascinating and what he's looking at in particular is how is the best practice from countries specifically China and Japan being borrowed by the DFE and how's it actually been implemented in classrooms in the UK and there's a couple of things that I found fascinating about this the first is the point that Ed made that it's not as if we're taking everything that's successful in China and Japan and you trying to use it in the UK we're kind of cherry picking bits of it and he used some really nice examples here so he said board work is an absolutely key feature of good Japanese lessons so I'd spent some time in Japan and spoke about it on the podcast and he showed an image of some of the best board work I've ever seen in my life but you never hear that spoke about kind of over here right whenever you talk about mastery and Singapore and all this kind of stuff I certainly like board work it is one of those things that you kind of know is a feature in these higher performing regions but it doesn't unless it's just me it doesn't seem to have that emphasis over here as being important well would you agree on that yeah no I've never heard anybody talk about it and yet in that context a, yeah and yet it's a key feature of these regions so I thought that was fascinating and Ed then spoke about kind of the key differences that, that he uh, he'd observed so he did a brilliant example where it was a count the dots exercise and he's been sharing this on Twitter and it was similar actually to, to what Don was talking about so he'd show a pattern he'd show um, the first three patterns of dots in a sequence and the first task of the kids would be what does the tenth pattern look like and he said said that wouldn't be anything out of the ordinary that'd be a standard lesson in the UK then it was okay can you draw the tenth pattern and again that wouldn't be anything out of the ordinary but then he said the rest of the lesson would be focused around talking about that tenth pattern what are the different ways that we can count these dots and then just mm -hmm. like Don said why are these different ways equivalent to each other can you see the structure behind it and he said for Ed said the key difference was the depth that these kids went into and it wasn't about answers it was about methods and he yeah. said again it's elaboration. Yeah, it's elaboration. <laughs> and he said that's something that okay, that that's that's something you hear talked about. But if you go, if you want to have the success that some of these regions have, that's mm. got to be a regular part, not just a one-off lesson on a Tuesday because you fancy it. That is a key yeah. part, and it's that's what's happening in lessons. And it's a lot. It's teacher-led lessons, like Ed said. There's not much time for independent inqui inquiry or anything. It's kids. It's kids coming up with an answer, and then the rest of the lesson, the teacher is essentially kind of running a discussion. Why do you think this? Where did this approach come from? And so on. Like it's very, very teacher-led. And then for me, what was interesting is that the kind of so-called boring practice of the skills that happens for homework, that happens outside of the lesson. The lesson itself is all about looking at different methods. Practice to get the right answers on skills comes at home. And again, it's making me think some of our kids, if that was the way we did it, they just don't do homework or they don't put enough time. You know, mm -hmm. so that's why for some of our kids we have to do the kind of practice in lessons yeah. so that that was one thing but then oh sorry go on, did he say why he thinks certain things are cherry picked and other things are ignored <laughs> he, he didn't know but he um, he picked quite a few things out that I thought god that's so obvious that that is such an important thing and yet we're not doing it so another one again you've touched on this is is curriculum like in these higher performing regions the curriculum is a lot smaller Mm -hmm. And yet, we're, ours is flipping massive, yeah. absolutely massive. So until we um, reduce the size of the curriculum, we can never go into the depth that we yeah. need to because we just don't have the time to do it. And he yeah. spoke about the ordering, and as you touched upon designing yours, that the logical ordering of the curriculum is absolutely crucial. 
But a lot of that comes from kind of textbooks, which are widely used across all yeah. schools. And again, that's not something that will be will be standard. That doesn't that doesn't seem to be something that's been kind of translated across. So it's it's like all right, we're, we're, there's all this kind of chat about mastery and uh, and kind of problem solving and all this. But what about the other features that go alongside that help support that? So I thought that was really 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 interesting. Um, and also a big one, of course, um, teachers are teaching less. They've got more collaborative planning and a crucially collaborative reflection. And, and Ed spoke about how teachers, because they're all teaching things in the same order, they'll actually get together across a district, 100 maths teachers. A teacher will say how they taught a particular lesson. Everyone else has taught that same lesson. So then you can have a discussion about it. And in the yeah. end, you've got essentially a perfect lesson. Now that just feasibly can't happen over here, right? Because no. like what you've been teaching your year sevens this week will be completely different to what I've been teaching course, them and yeah, stuff. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. But then, then it all kicked off, right? Because then he spoke about uh, maths no problem. Now, have you come across these um, these kind of series of books? I'm aware of them. I've not looked at them, though. Yeah, as I saw them for the, for the first time fairly recently. These, um, up until recently, these were the only books that had been approved by the government yes. as, as, um, as kind of mastery style textbooks. I, I think another series has, has been approved recently. And Ed's view on these is that they're great. Like, they're really, really good books, but they're a flipping fortune, right? And here's a fact for you, right? So, um, <laughs> Ed, they, they cost about 15 quid a book, right? Yeah. And the thing is, they kids need two textbooks and two workbooks per year. The workbooks obviously get... Like once you've used them, you can't reuse them. And the mm -hmm. textbooks themselves, they're not going to last, you know, maybe three or four years or whatever. But the same textbooks in China, in Japan, one pound a book. Oh. And the reason is, wait till you hear this for a twist, the paper they're printed on. So like our yeah. books are on really posh paper. Yeah. Whereas Ed said, the books in China, like they're terrible paper, but nobody cares okay, because they're just being used. Exactly. So Ed was just saying that, look, these books are amazing. And if every school had them, he mm. would, he's convinced they'd have a massive impact. But we haven't got the money for but that. The we can't flipping afford that. Cost, the flipping cost. It's, no. it, so yeah. Uh, and he said, each question's really, really well thought out. The, the logical ordering's fantastic. Um, the teachers who were using them, he said, they're happy. It's leading to kind of slower lessons. Less workload for teachers because yep. their planning time's been reduced. Um, the kids are doing actually less written work in class, but are engaging more in the discussions and stuff. He said the lessons he's seen with these are brilliant, but a couple of downsides. One, it's a flipping fortune, like prohibitively expensive. Yep. And also another issue that I thought was quite expensive, uh, was quite interesting, was that there's a difficulty when teachers are off. If there's an absence or a maternity leave or a supply teacher's brought in or you just need a lesson covered, it becomes much harder to cover those lessons effectively because you don't know the kind of the harder to deliver. You don't know the kind of journey the kids have been on. Whereas, yeah. like I could set cover work for a one-off lesson on practicing adding fractions or something like that. But these certainly for a non-math specialist would be a lot harder to deliver. But it was just it was a very interesting um, session. I thought. Yeah, it's really frustrating to me actually that the DfE will approve a book and say this is great. You should yeah. all use it. But then we haven't got the money to do so, so what are we supposed to do? Tricky, isn't it? Mm. It's tricky. But as I say, I've, I've seen these books, and they look flipping good. They, they do look good. Um, are we up to your final session now? Are we up to? Um, of, or no, did we're, you on, we're on five out of seven. Oh, jeez, I've seen, I've seen one out of seven. I should say, listeners, I, I'll be trained to catch fairly soon, but I, th I think we can get through these in the next kind of ten minutes or so. All right. Don't worry. Um, my next one was with Andrew Percival, who's a primary... Oh, yes, I know him. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the reason I went to this one is actually with um, another hat on, because I'm a governor 
Melbourne Primary School. That's right. So, um, I, and I, I'm particularly interested. One of my things is trying to get rid of written marking. Okay. Um, which is why I've I've done a session at one of the math comps a, a year ago on exit tickets and how we're doing that in our department. Um, and it's, it's, I guess it's one of my bugbears is the fact that teachers have to do insane amounts of marking yes. that doesn't actually help their students to improve. So I was interested to see how uh, um, he'd done it and implemented it in a primary school with, with my other hat on there. So that was fascinating. And he talked about the, the books that, that all the teachers have where they just make notes on what the students have done well, what's been done badly, what they need to look at in the next lesson, just make notes of names of people they need to speak to about X, Y, or Z. And, and, and that was it. So they don't put, mark anything in the children's books. They just make their notes in these books, which is specifically for the teacher and no one else. Jeez. And then they do all the feedback in the lesson. And the children can act on that feedback there and then. But he said to check through a class, um, a class worth of books takes a matter of minutes. Um, and to make them to make these notes so he said it's it's reduced workload a lot and the teachers are happy with it the children are happy with it and he said we have no complaints from parents about there being no marking in the books which i think is wonderful and in a secondary context do you think this could work absolutely yeah well i think there are lots of schools out there already pushing it michaela school do it for instance don't they um there's there's lots of us that are trying to move to getting rid of written comments and insane marking workloads that's really interesting. Right, we'll make a note to definitely dig into that more whenever you're back on the show. That's fascinating. Well, what else did you see then, Gemma? Um, so I was going to go to Tom Sherrington, talking about Rose and Shine's oh, yes. construction, but there was there was not even sitting on the floor room yeah, in that one by the time I got there. Yeah. So I went to see Nikki Jones, who oh, yes. used to be one of the local authority advisors for maths in Worcestershire. Um, and she was talking about the EEF report um, called Improving Mathematics in Key Stages 2 and 3. And she said, um, she was talking about the research in there, um, and initially she said, what you've got to be very careful of with research is you can't just, especially the EEF research, you can't just take the headlines and go, right, we're going to implement this across our school. Uh, There's lots of talk about the effect sizes in the EEF research and the number of months of improvement that are produced and these kinds of things. And and there's there's lots of debate around whether or not you can validly collate research that's done differently and all that kind of stuff. But we, we don't need to go into that now. But what she was saying was you just have to be careful initially. So you can look at the headlines, but then delve into it and read about what specifically was the research that informed those headlines before you just say, right, we must all start doing such and such. But what she did um, then go into were the eight recommendations that they made. And the second one is improving the use of, uh, the use of manipulatives and representations oh. in maths, which is interesting because it's, a, it's what a lot of people are talking about at the yes. moment, isn't it? And she said that primary schools are much better than secondary schools at doing this. And I see this myself with my own children. Yes. They, they use Numicon and all sorts of wonderful things. And we, I think, traditionally have, by the time they get to secondary, we, we don't really even know what a lot of yeah. manipulatives are. Where, where are you on manipulatives? Do you use them a lot? Um, do you know what? I, I don't use them a lot physically, partly because I've only recently come to find out about them. Mm. Um, what I have done, though, increasingly over the last few years, is use them visually on screen. Okay. So algebra tiles, for instance, I'll use on the screen. And I'm completely sold now on teaching completing the square using algebra tiles. Really? Completely That's sold okay. I think it's amazing. Um, the way you can get the students to understand the concept of completing the square by building squares and taking blocks out yes. is just superb. 
but I do need to look into it more because I think there's a lot more that can be that can be done with it my uh, we've I've also spent some time on bar modeling over the last few years since people started to talk about it started to find out about it the one concern I have with it is there comes a point where the image breaks down concern is probably the wrong word but there comes a point where the image breaks down Mm. and I think we have to be careful not to try and shoehorn any kind of visual image into everything that we do. Like, um, I don't know, there are some, for instance, questions on ratio that are so complex that trying to do them with a bar model would be harder than just solving the the question by scaling up the ratio, for instance, or other techniques. So I think they're wonderful as a way in, um, but we need to make sure we understand when we need to start weaning students off the image as well. But I guess that's the whole idea of moving from concrete to pictorial to abstract is that you do actually move to the abstract. Yes, and I'll tell you what, it's something I don't know enough about. And again, so I I spoke at when I did conference takeaway from the Maths Conf in Manchester, I went to Bernie Westercott's session and he had like four-year-old kids solving simultaneous equations. I was like, what is going on here? Absolutely unbelievable. But then all the time I'm thinking, all right, but they're going to reach a point where there is an equation that they can't solve using this method. Mm. So then what do I do? Do I have to essentially say, well, forget everything that's come before it and I'm now going to teach you the algebraic way? Or is there a smooth transition from the kind of visual pictorial way that then kind of transitions you into the procedure in a way that helps support it and makes it make sense? And I... I'm going to get Bernie on the show because it's that transition that I that I struggle with. I don't know how to make that smooth. I expect there'll be a point where you have to have the picture and the symbolic representation yeah. side by side. But what about the ones where you have ones that can't be represented with the picture? Because you know how like negatives always kind of mess yeah. things up, right? Yeah. So then what do you say to kids? Do you say... This one doesn't work with the picture, but I'm going to show you how to do it this well, way. Well, when, when I've done completing the square, for instance, we yeah. started off only with positives. Yes. And I know that if you have proper algebra tiles with negatives um, on the yes. other side, yes. you can do it, but I don't have that. Right. Um, so uh, with the on, on the board, I've just, just done it with positive numbers, but got them to the point where we're, we're building up... We show it on the board with the algebra tiles, yeah. and we write out the process algebraically side by side. Yeah. And then we talk about why the what we're writing down works related to the image. Yes. And then we do questions with positive numbers without the image. Got it. So at that point, I expect some of the children are still picturing it in yeah, their minds. Yeah, of course. But then we get to the point where they can do it with the positive numbers. And then I say, well, what have we been doing here? Well, we've been squaring the number in the bracket and then subtracting that. So... That will still apply if we do a negative number here, because if I square minus the minus three that's in the bracket, I will still get nine. Yes. And then I can compare that to my coefficient of x to the zero on the end. Got it. And that's that's worked well. That's worked brilliantly. I'm completely sold on that. Maybe. Okay. Well, I mean, I'll be interested. But is anything else spring to mind that you're also sold on for doing it, or is it just completing the square at the moment? Um. I don't want to say I don't want to say any others simply because I haven't tried them yeah, enough. Yeah, of course. I'm not experienced course. enough in it. Got it. Well, that can be a little project. Before uh, definitely. You're on, you're on yeah. next time. <laughs> definitely. Now, unfortunately, listeners, we we have, we have run out of time here. We we did actually see uh, two other sessions, and I'll just quickly give a very very quick takeaway. I won't do it justice. I, I was lucky enough to see um, Oliver. Uh, Cav- I always say his name wrong. 
Cavigillo, how would you That's much better. Let's go with that. That's excellent pronunciation, that one. Um, and again, he's an absolute legend in the in the uh, kind of dual coding and presentation of, of material. Um, and just it was just a, a fascinating um, session. And one thing I really got from it was how it was an absolutely great quote from Frederick Reef that poorly organized knowledge cannot be easily remembered, but students don't know how to organize knowledge effectively. And he said, it's all well and good kind of chucking, remember this, remember this, remember this, remember this. But there's levels of organizing knowledge. There's random, which essentially that is, just remember this, remember this, remember this. And that's very hard to then kind of organize it and get it and recall it. The next one up is a list. So remember these things. And that kind of made me think knowledge organizers, are, are they just kind of lists? And that's only kind of the the, the second level of, of being able to organize and remember knowledge. Next one up is a network where you're starting to see connections between things within. But the ultimate is the hierarchy. If you can get kids to understand how things fit together in families, then that's, that's the kind of ultimate way to organize and remember things. But we have to help our students develop this kind of hierarchical structure. And the obvious thing, I guess, from maths is it made me think of kind of families of quadrilaterals, how, you know, it's one thing, you've got a quadrilateral at the top and then you've got your trapeziums and then below them squares and what, which is a square or a trapezium, is a trapezium square, all that kind of thing. That mm -hmm. If you can get kids to understand hierarchies, then it's just a, a much more effective way of organising knowledge. And what I need to think about is, in maths, is it just shape properties or are there other things that I can present to kids in hierarchical form to kind of tap into this effective way of remembering things. So that was kind of my big takeaway. What was your final session? Uh, my last session was with Ben Baines and Jenny Giovanelli who are on the leadership team uh, um, in a secondary school and they were talking about how they've changed over the last few years the way that they um, do all of their performance management and just evaluating what's going on in the school and trying to move away from evaluating to um, just trying to improve practice instead and to stop people feeling like they're being judged and all those kinds of ideas. But the one thing that I was really interested in was the fact that they talked about trying to um, improve or measure practice of a department as a whole rather than individual teachers. Um, and getting a department to take responsibility uh, for things. Nice. And it linked really nicely to me for, for some, to something that I heard Dylan Williams say on your podcast about how the outcomes of a particular group of students isn't just dependent on the teacher that's teaching them that year. Yes. It's dependent on everything that they've had and all the teachers that they've had previously. So to to expect a department to work together and to treat a department as a whole rather than just look at the teachers individually to me was a really interesting idea and one I'd like to think about a lot more. That is fascinating. Perfect. Well, Gemma, we have reached the end of this Conference Takeaway podcast. Have you enjoyed your experience? I loved it. Thank you. That's, and you'll be back, yeah? I will. Perfect. That's a, that's a commitment now. There's no getting out of that. Um, we've had a great time. Uh, listen, we, we must thank... Well, firstly, like we're in rugby school. I should have mentioned that at the start. It's amazing, isn't it? Like, absolutely Beautiful. lovely. So thank you to a few people, really. So so to, to Jude, um, who, uh, who organised this event, um, and it's ju just been absolutely fantastic. And like research head and we've spoke about this before it's not, none of us are getting paid like I was hoping to get an absolute fortune for doing this talk but we, we don't get anything none of the speakers get anything and it's some real like big names are here aren't they like and also like some of the people I've spoke about here I I, um, I didn't know much about and their sessions kind of blew me away so you get people giving up their time showing their expertise it's a wonderful movement the research head movement and I would advise it's kind of growing and growing so anyone listening if there's one in your area or reasonably close to you 
just go like it's you'll not be disappointed we, we've seen what seven sessions and we've got kind of takeaways from every single one of them so it's it's been yeah. fascinating so uh Gemma, thank you so much for joining us thank you craig and listeners thank you for, for checking it out there'll be plenty more conference takeaways uh, throughout the rest of the year and uh take care of yourselves i will see you soon